Okay. So gift receipts would be a nice middle ground. Sorry? Gift receipts would be a nice middle ground. Well, yeah. No, no, no. But someone gives you a G4, and what do you do? You, get a, you, you immediately go to AT&T and get a data plan, and you do all sorts of things with it. So there, there are commodities that you do things with and commodities that you don't. And the general idea is that if you, if you build things in order to destroy them, which, um, which is a way of stimulating an economy, um, and it's what wars do, is that, that is you build things just to blow them up, um, that's good as, as economic stimulus, but bad in the long run. Um, what's good in the long run is if everything um, that is produced enters into further cycles of production um, and cycles of demand. So if someone gives you a sweater um, and you wear it, then you'll wear it. It'll keep you warm. That's good. Um, you'll use less oil because it's keeping you warm. So that oil will then be a little bit cheaper. So um, global warming will go down a little bit. Plus, the oil will be more available to to um, businesses to produce other things. If someone gives you a sweater and you put it in the closet, um, then what's happened is um, something's been produced for no reason, um, and that's an that's that's a dead weight loss. Um, that's that's something produced that's not consumed. Um, all production is ultimately for consumption, um, or should be. That's, that's what efficiency in an economy is that ultimately um, and everything produced gets consumed, where consumption is how the society reproduces itself. If you eat pizza, um, you may say it's junk food, but then you don't eat something else, and then you're alive in order to do more and, and engage in more economic activity. So the productiveness of a society, I can't believe I'm trying to give you an economics lecture, but the productiveness <laughs> of a society um, is through a cycle of production and consumption allowing um, the society to reproduce itself um, day by day and week by week and year by year to produce more. And everything that is thrown out, you know, food that's thrown out and so on, you know, someone cooks you a really nice meal. Um, because they think they're being nice to you, but it's stuff you hate, so you feed it to the dog. Um, so that's a waste of food. No, because the dog eats it. No, okay, I know, you're right. I keep, I keep trying to come up with colorful ideas. And also, I utility, the utility curve, which is general satisfaction of the population. That's factored in. Yeah, yes, it is factored in. Um, yeah. Um, well, it's sort of like that moment in the Odyssey when... Um, oh, nice. I forget if it was either Nestor or Menelaus offers Telemachus horses, and he says, no, you know, we can't use horses in, in Ithaca, you know, give mm -hmm. something Because it's rocky and hilly. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Okay, so just quickly to say, the, to, to, to give you the kind of general um, rituals in gift economy, and then we'll get back to funeral games, but the general rituals in gift economy are the giver um, has a bond with the receiver. Um, where that bond is that the receiver has to be nice to the giver. And being nice to the giver means not immediately giving something back, but accepting the obligation. Eventually, the receiver has to give something back to the giver. Um, and that is how um, exchange originally works in all societies. That is, um, between people and also even more so between societies. Um, that is, that one society will say, oh, we like you so much, here we've made, um, we, we, we have all this grain, we would like you to have it. And the other society thinks, oh, wow, all this grain, um, they're a great society and, and, and we're grateful. But then six months later, the second society um, says, you know, you're so nice to us and we like you so much and we've caught all these fish now um, and we'd like you to have these fish. Um, and then what's actually happening from um, a non-psychological point of view is you just get exchange. One society produces grain, one society produces fish. And um, every six months when the grain harvest comes in, um, those who produce grain um, give the grain to the fish-producing society. And six months later, the fish-producing society pays them back in fish. Um, and that's just exchange, but it's not exchange that feels like exchange to its actors. It feels like generosity going back and forth. Now, the, um, 
however, the important thing to see is that part of generosity is being willing to accept a gift. And part of aggression is refusing to accept a gift from someone, which is what Achilles does to Agamemnon when he makes his embassy. Um, that is, Agamemnon says, I'll give you Briseis back. I'll give you all this gold. I'll give you all these horses. I was wrong. You were right. Look how much I'm offering you. And Achilles says, shove it. And again, the impulse to say, shove it, is exactly, just think of, of how you feel psychologically when you say that to someone. Um, what you're essentially doing is saying, I refuse your generosity because I'm angry at you. Rather than saying to yourself what certain highly rationalist economists would say, which is, um, I will take their stuff and still hate them, um, it doesn't comport with your sense of integrity to take stuff from someone you hate, um, to, to take something that they're freely giving. You may steal stuff from someone you hate, but if they're offering you something, you're a particularly low kind of person if you take something from someone you hate. Not, if you think they owe it to you, that's one thing. But if you take someone from, something from someone you hate because you think, oh good, they'll be a little poorer and I'll be a little richer, just what I want, um, because I really hate them, um, that's a very low thing to do. Um, if they're willing to give it, it's low if you take it. And again, that psychological fact, if that rings a bell, that's a way of seeing how what Homer is talking about is still true. Okay, there's a third aspect of um, gift giving which comes up in funeral games, which is something that has, in anthropology, has been called the potlatch. Do people know, have people know this word? So um, the complications are fascinating. So in the Pacific Northwest, which is where this was um, studied most extensively and vividly, um, what the Klinga and the Kwekiutl um, Native Americans used to do is instead of giving gifts, so they're very elaborate rituals of gift giving. And part of, the, I'll just say that part of the ritual of gift giving um, is that you always the proper way to do it in many cultures will turn out to be that not only do you give someone a fabulous gift, but you also deprecate how good a gift it is. You know, you give someone an Hermes scarf, since we have to get Hermes back into this, um, you give someone an Hermes scarf, and you say, you know, I wish I could have given you something nicer um, this is, this is um, all I could find, and I know it's not what you really want, and I know it's not so great. So the idea is that, that um, part of the, part of the um, uh, not ritual, because people don't think of themselves as doing this because it's ritually required, people think of this as just a nice way to do it, um, is to say the gift I'm giving you isn't as nice as what I would want to give you. In fact, it's not very nice at all. Um, even when you've worked like a dog to get that gift to give someone, and you think it's an amazing thing, you don't want to boast about what you're giving them. And the very idea that it would be boastful to point out what a wonderful gift you're giving, again, that's a sign of our knowledge that gift giving is status conferring. That is, it confers status on the giver. Um, so again, the reason it's bad manners to boast about what an amazing gift you're giving. Um, first principles wouldn't tell you that it's bad manners, but it seems obvious to us that it's bad manners, right? To, to boast, to say, look at this amazing thing I'm giving you. Um, then what you're doing is really um, telling the other person to grovel, and you're not supposed to do that. I mean, do we all feel that? Um, I know that your parents have said to you, look at this amazing thing I'm giving you, I'm giving you and look how you repay us. Um, <laughs> but I'm saying in, in more in relationships among equals. Um, parents are allowed to boast about what they're giving you because they already have the status with respect to you. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're in love with someone or if someone's a close friend of yours and, or, or um, you want someone to be a friend of yours, um, one thing that you will never do is saying, look, I'm gonna, here's, here's something that's really amazing that I'm giving you. Um, they have to notice it's amazing, um, but you're not supposed to tell them that it's amazing. Um, and so that fact um, can lead to 
Um, well, there's in, in um, among the Maori, there's a standard thing to say, which is kind of ritualized. Um, but the people who do it don't think it's ritualized. That, but but um, I think it was Boas um, observed this, um, that someone gave someone else a diamond. And what they said is, um, take this poor gift. Um, I'm sorry, it's all I had. Um, it was, um, um, I found it in my food. And, um, and um, it's not even, you can't even eat it. Um, but it's, it's what I got. So they're treating it as though it's like a chicken bone. Um, and the idea is that it's a diamond, but the person giving it is, is basically not saying, look, a diamond, but look at this, it's nothing. Um, the, what the Klingon Quakeyutl used to do is to take this to its logical extreme, which is they would, they would say, I know that giving you a gift would put you under obligation to me. That would be terrible. I certainly don't want you to feel obliged to me. Um, so instead of giving you this gift, I'm actually going to burn it. Um, so here's some beautiful blankets. I would give them to you, but then you would feel under obligation. I'll throw them in the fire. Or actually, here's some money. I would love to give it to you, but you would feel terrible. Look, I'll just throw it into the sea. And that's what they used to do. And that's called the potlatch. It's actually the destruction. Rather than giving gifts, gifts are destroyed. And, sorry? Who did this? Well, a lot of societies do it, but it was... It was vividly and well studied among the Quakeyutl and the Klingit in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but every year, Venice, for example, the city of Venice would symbolically, but again, think about why the symbolism works, um, they would throw a golden ring into the sea, into the Adriatic Sea every year. The Doge of Venice um, would throw a ring into the sea. Um, the way they explained it is this shows the marriage of the city of Venice with the sea, because Venice was a maritime, um, the great maritime power. But the idea that you give someone precious metal um, as a way of sealing a bond with them, which is what giving a ring is in marriage, um, that's another version of the gift economy. With this ring, I thee wed, because I give you this precious band of gold, and now you owe me. And it's not, now you owe me. But it's rather, look, 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 here's, here's a sign of my love. Love me back. Um, and the exchange of rings is not, doesn't, I mean, again, think about the fact that the exchange of rings in marriage isn't, doesn't cancel out. It's not, oh, yeah, you gave me a $500 ring, and I'm giving you a $500 ring, so we're even. It's rather each of us owes the other. That's the idea of marriage, that each person is now owes something to the other person. And the exchange of rings is, is the symbol, but it's a symbol of its own symbolism, you could say. So all these things, they're, they're, they're a million different phenomena of this sort of gift giving. But again, one aspect of it is that the generosity that the receiver owes the giver is that the receiver has to um, not show ingratitude by paying back too quickly. And so there's something generous in getting horses, and there's something generous in accepting the horses. And um, it's, again, again, I think everyone's been in this position also, that if someone says, I really can't take that from you, no, I really can't, that's a rejection. Um, that's a ticklish situation because the person's saying, no, I really can't take that from you. They think they're being nice to you. But if you really want them to have it, you'll feel spurned by that. And that, again, is a delicate and tricky social situation. Um, and that delicate and tricky social situation is something that Homer is writing about all over the place. Um, kiss the hand of the person who has killed your son and then actually feel gratitude when he gives you your son's body back. In effect, what, what Achilles is saying is, so Priam says, okay, you've given me my son back. That's great. I think I'll be going. And Achilles says, if you go now, I may kill you. That is, don't show this ingratitude. You have to eat with me. I've given you your son's body back, but you have to, you have to eat with me now. You have to show that something real happened here and that you weren't just doing it only to get your son's body back. Um, eat with me or I'll kill you. 
is essentially what he says. And that really is the starkest of all choices. Eat or die. Take my generosity or die. Um, because generosity is what's counter to death. That's the law of hospitality. Those are the laws of hospitality. Athena has a great account of them, which I hope you noticed in the Odyssey. Um, so that idea um, is, again, um, um, in the funeral games. And the idea in the funeral games is like the idea of the potlatch, which is that the dead person now gives away all that he has, and you can't pay the dead back except by accepting what the dead person has had. So the dead gives away all that he has, and there are two ways that he does it. One is by distributing his goods among those who wear them in honor of the dead and acknowledge that the only reason that they are wearing Patroclus's armor or um, have Patroclus's horse is because he's dead. If Patroclus were alive, they wouldn't have it. So Patroclus was the greater. So the dead person is still acknowledged as greater. Or the dead person's stuff is burned. Um, what what um, Andromache says um, when Hector, when she hears that Hector has died, is she goes and looks at all his clothing. And she says, no one will ever wear these clothes. I will not give these clothes away, for no one can wear what Hector wore. I will destroy them. Um, in fact, she ends up, this is, I'm sure you didn't notice this, but um, some of them end up going as gifts to Achilles. That is, she thinks that she's not going to get Hector's body back, so she's going to destroy his clothes, because Hector's absence is what matters. But then she presumably destroys some of them, but some of them go to gifts for Achilles. Um, and um, that's really telling that that happens. So the Hect Andromache destroying Hector's clothes or sending some of them to Achilles, though that's actually anthropologically and psychologically the same thing as the funeral games, which is that what Patroclus has now goes to people who are imitating his greatness in a context that isn't as serious as the context in which he died. They are competing for his stuff, and they're not going to die. And that's the point. But he did die. So when they get his stuff, they're getting his stuff as recipients of the much more major thing that caused these prizes to exist to begin with, which is the death of Patroclus. So, so for gift giving and death go together as when the dead give away, when, when the dead make a will. The very idea of a will is that the dead person still has this living quality or property of being able to decide something being able to interact with the living. The moment of reading a will, the noun, is, or a will as a piece of paper, is also that the will of the dead, what they will to be, is still somehow there in the world. In their absence, it's still somehow there in the world. So the funeral games are Patroclus is dead in a highly serious way, now we who are less serious will compete for his stuff, which we cannot wear or possess in the serious way that he did. We who will inherit this stuff are inheriting it as lesser beings than Patroclus or lesser beings than the dead person. And our very ownership of this is a sign of our gratitude to this person who is gone and whose absence is what we are always depicting by um, competing for and therefore imitating his prowess, competing for the things that he got in war, we are competing for them in the much less important um, um, relationship of gaming. Um, and all of that redounds to the more serious fact of the dead person, 
those who were alive are playing, those who are dead were serious. And so we, um, by contrast, we show the seriousness of their death by only being able to possess their stuff in this second rank way, winning it in a contest rather than winning it in war. Yeah. Um, a question about, about the burning of, um, of a person's belongings when, when they die. Um, how, if at all, does, um, does pillage fit into this? So when, when raping and pillaging and looting, um, is there any, is it, is it a nice thing to burn the city in addition, or perhaps to make up for stealing or burning their things? It's not a nice thing in reality, but it's a nice thing in, um, in literature. Right. <laughs> that is to say, it's not that the people who are doing it are nice, but the absence of Troy um, from the world um, leaves the world with a huge Troy-shaped absence, which is depicted by the Iliad and the Odyssey. And, and Virgil, perhaps. Right? And the Aeneid. Yeah. Um, so, and that huge Troy, in the Aeneid, just so you know, the tr huge Troy-shaped absence is then filled by Rome. Um, that is what the Aeneid is about, is how Aeneas, do people know, is how Aeneas um, leaves, leaves burning Troy and goes to Italy, to Ausonian land, um, as Milton says, and um, builds Rome. Since, since I mentioned Milton, I'll also say that Satan's relation to God, um, he talks about... Um, the debt immense of endless gratitude, still paying, still to owe. He says, the reason I rebelled against God and started a war against him is I couldn't stand the fact that I owed him everything and he demanded nothing from me. It was the gratitude itself that I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand having to be grateful to him all the fucking time. And so... Um, he brings death into the world and all our woe because gratitude was was um, intolerable to him. Um, yeah, Emily. So, I, I don't know if this is my thing, but I'm an art history major, and one of the themes I studied in public art uh -huh. is monuments and um, how to commemorate like the Holocaust appropriately. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways is through absence. Yes. That if you you know you can't make up for what happened, so yeah. like leave a, a hole in a where in, in Germany or an inverted fountain or something makes you feel the absence and that needs to remember. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and, and that's exactly right. But just think also of, you know, um, uh, the riderless horse in funerals. Um, the whole point is the person who should be riding that horse is dead um, is a really good example of that. Or think of the Vietnam Memorial, you know, that great V in the mall in, in Washington. And all it is is this absence um, the, the names of the dead, but no statues about them. I mean, the huge argument was, look, why aren't there statues of the dead? Then they would be, you know, we would be honoring them. And those who think the Vietnam Memorial's amazing um, think the absence of the dead is um, even more powerful than their memorialization um, in sculpture, in stone. Um, so yeah, that's exactly right. Um, in um, Etruscan funeral art, um, which, is, which is quite amazing, um, the way you can tell in funeral steles, the way you can tell who's dead is you'll often see a couple, and um, one person will be holding the hand of another, and the person who's dead won't be holding back. So you'll have a hand clasping a hand that's not clasping. Um, and that's a very, you know, that, that's a subtle absence, but it's the absence of a return. Um, that is, you have a sculpture of a living, you know that the one person in stone is alive because they're doing something that the living do. And one person in stone is actually dead because they're not doing what the living do. Um, think about the difference between the sculpture of a dead person and the sculpture of a living person. The sculpture of a living person, you have the widest possible distinction between a stone figure and a human being. One is inert and one is alive. The sculpture of a dead person, the difference isn't that much. It's just two kinds of inertness, the inertness of stone and the inertness of the corpse. Um, so that's why there are very few depictions of dead people in sculpture, except in those funeral steles. 
That's why the World War um, II Memorial, which is right next to or right near the um, Vietnam Memorial, or no, I guess they, I guess there was another commissioned um, Vietnam Memorial which showed, um, show some soldiers. Um, they're, those soldiers are living. Um, sculptures of the dead tend to represent them as living, um, not represent them as dead. Um, in either case, these are two forms of absence. Um, they should be living, but all that's left is this stone showing what they looked like when they were alive, but they're not alive. Or they should be living, but they're gone, so there's nothing. Um, and for a lot of people, the second is the more profound way of memorializing the dead, the riderless horse way. Um, but ultimately, they're the same idea. Yeah? How do you think there's this huge, like, common anxiety um, all the characters about fading into obscurity after death? Yeah. And this, like, part of living life is securing your remembrance after death? Yes, exactly. No, that's exactly right. And how do you secure your remembrance? Well, from the singers. Um, and so one of the things, um, okay, so there, there's a bunch of, bunch of things now that we can finally start talking about the Odyssey. Um, there are a bunch of things to notice um, from the start and a bunch of ways that it's very like um, the Iliad, but a bunch of ways that it's, it's not just more of the same. That is, there's a reason that Homer went to the Odyssey after the Iliad. He was doing something different. He was telling a different kind of story. Um, and it's really worth noticing that it's a different kind of story, that you can't, from the Iliad, you could not imagine the Odyssey. And from the Odyssey, you could not imagine the Iliad. It's not, oh, yay, Homer has two epics, but if we only had one, that would be fine. It's a little bit like Shakespeare, where you know, if you had one Shakespearean tragedy, or if you were, um, you know, the world is being destroyed by global warming, and you are given a Kindle, but there isn't a lot of memory, and you have to bring as much of human literature as you can. Um, if the for the Shakespeare part of that, if you're entitled to bring um, two Shakespeare plays, you might say Hamlet and King Lear are the two greatest plays by Shakespeare but you would nevertheless do a lot better to take one tragedy and one comedy. That is, you can't, from Hamlet, you might be able to guess at King Lear. From um, Twelfth Night, you might be able to guess at A Midsummer Night's Dream, but you couldn't guess Twelfth Night from Hamlet. And you couldn't guess Hamlet from Twelfth Night. The same is true of the Iliad and the Odyssey. They are as different as two different kinds of Shakespeare plays. And to get a full sense of Homer, you really need both. You don't get to diminishing returns by reading both epics in Homer. Um, and that's a crucial thing to see. So, what, so there are lots of different um, things. Obviously, there are a lot of relationships between them. And, and Homer is, is returning to a lot of the issues in the Iliad and reminding you of them. But there are also a lot of, of really crucial differences. One thing to notice from the start, this is sort of minor and major simultaneously. One thing to notice from the start is that um, the singers, the bards, the, um, the moment that we saw in the Iliad when Achilles is playing the lyre, um, there are a lot of people like that in the Odyssey. From the start, there are a lot of different um, poets who are singing these tales. And Homer is um, that question of glory and the question of the telling of the tale, that's something that occurs over and over again, gets thematized over and over again in the Odyssey. Another thing to notice, and this really is more important, is that we get a whole lot of backstory. We got backstory in the Iliad also. But the Odyssey gives us a whole lot of backstory through what Menelaus says. That is, Telemachus goes to see Nestor, and then um, um, following Nestor, he goes to see Menelaus. And then Menelaus tells the, all the stories of what happened after the end of the war. And the stories of what happened after the end of the war are essentially stories of the death of the heroes of the Iliad. Um, that is, Agamemnon dies, and Agamemnon is, is the most crucial one, um, and, um, but Agamemnon dies, Aeas dies, Ajax that is, and of course Achilles 
dies. Um, so all the great figures of the Iliad whom we've spent an enormous amount of time with, almost all of them are dead um, by the time the Odyssey starts. Now the Odyssey starts 10 years after, or actually 11 years after the Iliad ends. Um, Odysseus has been wandering 10 years at the time that the Odyssey starts. Um, and it's in that time that all these deaths have occurred. Um, just to point out, the architecture of the Odyssey um, is unbelievably stunning um, because what you get are narratives nested in narratives nested in narratives. So what you get, for example, even at the start, is the story of Telemachus. It's often called the Telemachiad. Um, the story of Telemachus um, is what the beginning of the Odyssey is about. Odysseus doesn't even appear in the Odyssey until book five. But you get the story of Telemachus, and the story of Telemachus involves um, first a little bit of a story about Penelope and her loom, then the story of, of how Telemachus escapes from Ithaca despite the suitor's um, desire to kill him sooner rather than later. Um, goes to talk to Nestor, who sends him to Menelaus, and then you get what's sometimes called the Menelaid, where Menelaus tells his story. Um, so the story of Telemachus contains within it the story of Menelaus, and the story of Menelaus contains his story of what Proteus said to him, and the story that Proteus tells Menelaus, uh, um, which Menelaus then tells Telemachus. Um, that's the first of a series of nestings in the Odyssey. The bulk of the first half of the Odyssey is going to be Odysseus's story. Um, so again, you get a nested narrative um, where almost all the famous episodes that you'll remember, um, the, the that, or the, the myth that you may know even if you've never read the Odyssey, what happened with Polyphemus, what happened with the wandering rocks, what happened with the oxen of the sun, all of that stuff is told retrospectively by Odysseus. So there again, you have another nested narrative. Um, and Homer keeps unbelievable track of all this stuff, of stories within stories within stories and who knows what, um, and what Athena is telling various people. Now to get back to, the, to what we're learning in these first six books, and in particular um, what Menelaus is um, telling Telemachus about, um, what's the major story that Menelaus tells about what's happened to the figures in um, the Iliad? Or, I'm, okay, I'll just say the major story is the story of Agamemnon. So what has happened to Agamemnon? Yeah. His wife and Paul Lovell kill him? Yeah. So Agamemnon returns home to find that his wife Clytemnestra, um, after having resisted the blandishments of Aegisthus for a while, um, gives in to him. Um, and um, when Agamemnon now returns home, um, he is murdered by his wife and her lover, and something that um, is just said by the by in a single line is that Agamemnon had actually asked the singer in um, his court to watch what Clytemnestra was doing. Um, so that Agamemnon had his suspicions, and he actually asked the singer um, to keep an eye out. Um, nothing much is made of that, but it's just, just notice that, that it's the singer who's watching everything that goes on. Um, and so Agamemnon is murdered by his wife and her lover. Um, there's a long story of revenge involved in that. And then what happens? Menelaus goes on with that story. What happens to Clytemnestra? And I guess this. That um, Agamemnon's son avenges his death. Yeah, so Orestes, Agamemnon's son, avenges his death. So what you have here, the story of Agamemnon and um, Aegisthus and Clytemnestra and Orestes, that's the story that becomes the subject of the greatest um, set of Greek tragedies, that is the Aristia by, by um, Aeschylus. Um, which if we weren't doing as much other stuff as we're doing, we would also do. Um, that's the story of Orestes taking revenge 
on the death, for the death of his father by killing his mother and her lover. And of course, as a, as a subject of tragedy, you can't have a better subject of tragedy. Um, Hegel's definition of tragedy, which some of you have heard me quote before, is that tragedy is not the struggle between right and wrong, but the struggle between right and right. Um, it's when both sides are right that you have tragedy. That's certainly what the Iliad is about, is about both sides being right. Hector is right and Achilles is right. They're both right. And when you have right versus right, you have tragedy. Um, for, for Aeschylus, the situation in which it is wrong to allow your parent to be killed, wrong to connive at the death of your parent, and therefore right to revenge the death of your parent, however the revenge requires killing your parent, that is the absolute essence of tragedy, that, that Orestes' father has been murdered, and he must take revenge on the murderer, but the murderer is his mother. So he will repeat the very thing that he is avenging by killing his mother for, the, for her murder of his father. Um, so that is as elemental a tragic situation as you can imagine. Shakespeare explicitly in Hamlet has the ghost, who's a jerk in a whole lot of ways, has the ghost tell Hamlet, do not take revenge against your mother. You can take revenge against my brother who murdered me. I am not going to tell you whether your mother was involved or not. Don't do anything to her. So he is explicitly leaving Hamlet, not putting Hamlet in the situation that Orestes is in, in the Oresteia. Um, it's, it's an explicit refusal of that impossible situation. Shakespeare has other fish to fry, and he fries them um, like chicken fried steak. Um, but it's, that's the, that's as, as utter, that's the black hole of tragedy. Is, arrest, is the tragedy that Orestes finds himself in, um, having to avenge the death of a parent by killing a parent. Um, nothing can be worse than that. Um, so that's the situation. Uh, uh, Aeschylus is getting this probably largely from the Iliad. Um, so Aeschylus is, um, is a good 400 years or 300 years after the Iliad is written down, Aeschylus writes um, the Oresteia. But that's the situation um, that, that Homer is depicting in the story of Orestes and Agamemnon and Aegisthus and Clytemnestra. Why? That story comes up four or five times um, in these first six books. Um, he really, Homer really wants you to know that aspect of what happens after the Trojan War. Um, and he, the reason he wants you to is that, it, is that he's setting up various contrasts. One contrast is the difference between um, Clytemnestra's relation to Agamemnon and Helen's relation to Menelaus. That is that um, Menelaus and Helen um, reconcile after the Trojan War. Um, and even though Helen has more or less done to Menelaus what Clytemnestra has done to Agamemnon, which has dumped him for another guy. Um, after, and after feeling ambivalent about doing it, she does do it. Um, Clytemnestra doesn't return to Agamemnon, whereas Helen does return to Menelaus, and they reconcile. So here are two possibilities. Um, for for um, male female husband wife um, stories of a, of a husband and wife, one the wife leaves the husband and then murders him. Another the wife leaves the husband and returns to him. Now one of the stories that Menelaus tells, which is a story about Odysseus, also is what Helen did when the Trojan horse was brought into Troy. What does Helen do? Do people remember? Yeah. She calls out in the voices of their wives. Yeah, in, all an, the men yeah in an amazing way. And just think how, how elegant and beautiful this, 
this um, anecdote is that she calls to all the men in there in um, in the horse in the voices she imitates the voices of their wives, and they are just desperate to reply. So she's calling in the voice she actually is the wife of one of the people in the horse, Menelaus, but she starts calling in the voice of all the people in the horse, and their desperation to be back home is such that it overrules their knowledge that there's no way their wives are in Troy. Um, and the point is that they have this almost instinctive desire to respond, even though such a response would be suicidal. And it's Odysseus alone who manages to prevent that from happening. Um, so this is a story about Odysseus's brilliance, that he's not fooled by Helen, who calls to him in the voice of Penelope. Now, again, the amazing thing about that is um, that it's setting up a really important climactic moment in the Odyssey, um, which is, when, which is the, the um, return when Odysseus and Penelope do come together, finally, at the end. Um, when Odysseus and Penelope um, are reunited, um, that a false reunion is not good enough for Odysseus. He's not fooled by it. Um, it's setting up how the true reunion, which is an amazing set of um, incidents, will occur. Um, and it's um, also just telling you emotionally how much returning home to those they love matters to the Greeks. Again, we talked about this in the Iliad, that the Trojans are at home as they fight, and the Greeks are far away. Um, the expeditionary force of the Achaeans is um, a force. They are lonely and, um, and miserable, whereas the Trojans are fighting for their homeland, but they are also with those that they love. Um, Hector is with Astyanax. Odysseus, we saw in the Iliad, says that he's proud to be um, the father of Telemachus. That's how he describes himself, but he left Telemachus as an infant. Um, Telemachus is now about 20, so he was just a little baby when Odysseus left. Alona. So I'm not. I'm kind of curious more about the story. Does Penelope know that they were in the horse? Penelope or Helen? Um, Helen, did she know they were in the horse, and did she try to sabotage them? I mean, she could have just said they're in the horse. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, she didn't. No. So you'll see more of the story in the Aeneid. But the basic idea is: so here's a horse which is um, which is a gift to Athena. And the horse is something sacred. So um, one thing you could do, which we would say is, you know, um, just, just chop into the horse and see if there's anyone there. Um, but if it's sacred, um, there's, there'll be a long story about this in, in the Aeneid. But if it's sacred, you don't want to be um, chopping into it um, because it's a sacred thing. So how do you determine? It's like the Shroud of Turin. How do you determine whether this thing is sacred or not um, without taking the chance of, um, of destroying something sacred. So with the Shroud of Turin, after lots and lots of discussion, um, I guess the Catholic Church said, OK, you can take the tiniest little bit of it and subject it to, to um, scientific analysis. And other people were saying, that's shocking. You can't do anything. You know, it's, it's completely holy. But they finally um, permitted that to happen. Um, with the Trojan horse, um, they're not going to go chopping into the Trojan horse to see whether it's a trick or not, in case it isn't a trick. Because if it isn't a trick, boy, are the gods going to be pissed. Um, so they can't take that chance. So they try other ways. And Helen, who is on the side of the Trojans, um, and who is the most seductive human being alive, according to People magazine, um, Helen um, does do all the voices. This is going to be picked up. Another thing that this is setting up is the siren song for Odysseus. That is that Helen is sort of the first siren in, um, in the Odyssey. So you guys haven't come to the siren song yet, but you've heard the phrase and some of you know the story. Um, so 
Um, Helen, um, so the idea is to see whether the Trojan horse is really sacred or whether it's a trick. Um, but if it's sacred, um, you can't treat it as a trick or you're in trouble. Um, so what, what the Trojans are trying to do is figure out ways of seeing whether there might be Greeks hidden inside or not. Helen doesn't know, um, but she's trying to find out. Um, and she's trying to help the Trojans to find out. Um, yeah? So if her husband is in the horse and she loves her husband, why does she know? Because she loves Paris. Helen is, like Briseis and Chryseis and various other things, the question of who the women, I mean, it's, a, it's actually an extremely important question, which is that the Iliad um, has set things up so that although Helen feels some guilt about having gone off with Paris, she's also glad to have gone off with Paris. In the Iliad, except for Andromache, women do not have um, the power of self-determination, um, even with respect to who they will love. That is to say, um, the Iliad is very much about absolute male dominance, but that's part, it's not that that's what Homer believes, it's that Homer is depicting a culture in which the expectation of male dominance is so tremendous that women are, um, um, do love, you know, it's like loving Big Brother. Women do love the men who have won them. The, this, the just one sec, the um, exceptions to this rule, and Homer sets down this rule in order to bring the exceptions up. The two exceptions of this rule are the real love that Andromache has for Hector, which is nothing like anything you see in Helen, and also the mourning of Briseis over Patroclus, which is, again, a huge Homeric surprise, that when Patroclus comes back, um, it's the women, but in particularly Briseis, who mourns over him, and says, as Andromache will later say, um, as Helen, excuse me, will later say about Hector, um, you really cared. You were, you were different from everyone else. You really cared. That's what Helen will say about Hector. And that's not what she thinks about anyone else. Um, but the point then is that Helen represents, from the Iliad, Helen in the Odyssey will represent the woman um, whose love is dictated by her lord and master. Um, and she's appealing in both, in both books, um, but she does not have the central strength of character that someone like Andromache has. Um, Clytemnestra does have that strength of character, um, but for her, not loving her lord and master becomes a terrible sin, as it was. Clytemnestra is sort of the, the evil extreme of Helen, and, but all of these contrasts with Penelope, who is as important and central a figure as Odysseus and um, Telemachus are. And we can already see this in Calypso. That is one of the great things about um, the Iliad, is that all is, is its treatment of women, um, although some of it is very iffy, its treatment of women, um, this is a story in which women have a lot more autonomy than they do in the Iliad. And that's part of the point. Yeah. I was wondering how goddesses fit into that. Well, goddesses are hard, um, partly because um, part of Athena's glory, part of what she boasts about is that she has no mother. Um, that is that although she's a female goddess, she's sort of um, the female as male. And she's always disguised as male. She will never, when she wants a woman um, to dis be disguised as a human being, she won't do it. She, she makes an image to be a woman to talk to Telemachus or to talk to, to actually to talk to Odysseus um, among the Phaeacians. Um, she disguises herself as, as males when she talks to Telemachus and to Odysseus, but she won't disguise herself as a woman to do it. So they are what they are, they're the goddesses um, to the extent that they're martial. Um, are um, um, depict themselves as male. 
um, as though being male is 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 being martial. Um, the goddesses um, uh, self um, uh, um, determination. Yeah, they're goddesses, um, but still, it's Zeus who's king of the gods, and they still have to engage in various sort of um, uh, standard, old-fashioned, um, you know, Lucille Ball tricks in order to get, um, except for Athena, in order to get the men to do what they want the men to do. Hera has to put Zeus to sleep. Um, uh, Aphrodite has to do blandishments. Thetis has to has to embrace Zeus by the knees, and so on. Um, so the goddesses are also subordinate. You know, there it's it's very upper class subordination, but it's still subordination. Penelope is the great exception to this, and that's part of the point of the Iliad. Let me just say, I mean, of the Odyssey. Let me just say one other thing, um, which is that. The Iliad is about the death of, of its greatest men, of its greatest figures. Um, it's the death of Hector, which is, of course, what it ends with. The death of Patroclus, obviously. Um, and the, the prophesied and very close death of Achilles, which is about to happen. So the great figures in the Iliad the Iliad says, are soon to die. All the great men in the Iliad are soon to die. The Odyssey begins with an account of the deaths of the other people um, who have not, who we didn't know were going to die simply from the Iliad. But what Proteus says to Menelaus is, yeah, they died too. Aeus died, um, and Agamemnon died. And really, the only two heroes to get back of the really major figures in the Iliad are, are Menelaus himself, you'll get back. Um, and there's one who's still wandering on the sea, Odysseus. So Menelaus gets back. He has, a, he has very brief wanderings. He doesn't get right back, but he gets back. Odysseus is the one who gets back. The Odyssey is about survival. So the Iliad is about glory, not only at the expense of death, but in fact, death itself is glory in the Iliad. Making yourself an absence is the most glorious thing you can do. That's what Achilles does from the start. We need Achilles. Where's Achilles? We can't win without Achilles. And then death itself is permanent absence. That's what we talked about with respect to the funeral games. The Odyssey is about a survivor. Odysseus is perfectly willing to look like any kind of bum. Literally, he will be disguised as a bum in order to survive. Achilles would never lie. Odysseus will almost never tell the truth. Um, and he's an absolutely different kind of hero, but the result is a happy ending. Um, and that's, that's why I compared it to Shakespearean tragedy and comedy. The Odyssey is, it's a violent comedy, but it's ultimately a comedy. And it's a very different kind of work from the Iliad for that reason. Um, and as a comedy, as in Shakespeare also, in comedy, Comedies are only great if women are great. You don't need great women to have a great tragedy. Um, it helps, but you don't need them. Um, you can't have a great comedy without great women. Um, and the Odyssey is a, and Homer knew that, and the Odyssey is a demonstration of that. All right, so um, I, know you, I know that after you rush through the Iliad for the quiz, you're behind on the Odyssey. But it really, it's 100 pages shorter. Um, and so catch up for um, Tuesday.